So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote uh, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, those among who are being saved and among those who are perishing to a fragrance from death to death to, to one, a fragrance from death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So, um, I'm going to pray and then we will jump into the text. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this, uh, this word. Thank you for this book. I pray that as we study this uh, text this morning, that you would help us um, see and understand all the aspects of what true forgiveness looks like. Um, Lord, you've called us to forgive, and it can be quite difficult. Um, there's, there's hurts that have come across us in our life, and sometimes it's difficult. And I pray that as we look at this text this morning, um, as we examine how the Corinthians hurt Paul, but how Paul forgave the Corinthians, that we would see um, the meaning of the text, but above all that, it would, you would lift out application, and we could see in our own lives, like the, the Corinthians hurt Paul and he forgave, that those who have hurt us, we can also extend forgiveness to other people. So Lord, I pray that you would help us see that, and Holy Spirit, that you would cause these things to be Corinthians, uh, and written to the Corinthians. Um, First Corinthians is the, is the second, and there was in between, the first letter we don't have, uh, it's mentioned in Second Corinthians chapter 5, I'm sorry, First Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9, second letter that was written to him is actually First Corinthians, the third letter is what's known as the severe letter, Paul mentions it in Second Corinthians 2, 1, uh, where he had written a pretty, uh, a pretty harsh letter where he knew that it would be painful and sorrowful, but he calls them to repentance. And Titus had gone there after they'd received the, the letter and came, come to Paul and said, hey, they received your letter. And it looks like most of them have repented. Some of them haven't, but some of them have. Um, and so after that, he wrote this fourth letter to them, which we have as second Corinthians preparing for his visit to go there. And so he wrote second Corinthians saying, I'm coming there. Uh, I, I want to send this letter ahead of time to make things a little bit easier between the two of us. And so, um, he knew that his severe letter had caused them some sadness. And so, uh, he's writing this letter to, to ease what's going on. And so really this, the letter of second Corinthians broken down into three huge main sections. We're we're still in section one. Um, that's chapters one through seven. Section one was where Paul reconciles with the Corinthians, tries to bring them back together. And he also wants to defend his apostolic position. The super apostles or those that had come in that Paul calls them the super apostles. Uh, those that had come in had kind of saying, Paul's not so great. Paul's not really an apostle worthy to be listened to. And he tells them actually uh, in this letter, uh, he is an apostle and he should be listened to. So in chapters one through seven, he's wanting to reconcile with the Corinthians and defend his apostolic position. Chapters eight and nine, he talks about generosity. Chapters 10 through 13, he gives a final challenge and lets them know he's coming. So that, those are later. But in this first section, one through seven, uh, one of the things he wants to do is reconcile with the Corinthians. He really wants them to be reconciled to him. So as he's doing this, we saw in the very first sermon of the series that he talks about comfort and he offers them uh, an understanding of what comfort might be. And last week we looked at it, he, he talks about what reconciliation looks like. And so uh, as he talked about reconciliation, um, it's pushing us to think, well, we need to reconcile with, with, with 
uh, each other. Paul is telling the Corinthians, we need to reconcile. There was a, a thing between us. You wronged me, but I'm going to be the one that actually starts the, the reconciliation. Like Christ, he goes to them and re- reconciles the situation, which is what Jesus did for us. We were enemies of Jesus. We, we're the ones that messed everything up. We didn't take the first step towards salvation. He instigated and brought it to us. So Paul's very Christ-like there. So as we looked at reconciliation last week, it pushes us to realize that the much-needed follow-up sermon or the much-needed follow-up text after reconciliation, uh, which is this week's text, which is forgiveness. If we're going to reconcile, then we need to talk about forgiveness. And so that's what verses 5, well, 5 through 11 is, is about, is um, lessons in forgiveness. So today's sermon title is Lessons to Learn When Forgiving Others. It'll come up on the screen. You don't need to put it up yet. Uh, it'll come up. Uh, but the, the main idea, verses 5 through 11, is lessons to learn whenever it's time to actually extend forgiveness. If Paul talked about reconciliation last week, now he's going to talk about what true forgiveness looks like. But forgiveness, in and of itself, it can be tough. It can be tough for us to do um, when we've been wronged by someone to forgive them uh, can be extremely difficult. Why? Why can it be extremely difficult? I jotted down, I think, uh, three reasons. There's probably numerous reasons, but I thought three right off the bat in my head. Why can it sometimes be so tough to forgive somebody that's wronged you? One is that uh, some people are just built to hold on to hurt. That they, they've, they live their life and they don't feel like they're right unless they have been hurt and they're holding on to it. And so sometimes it's tough to forgive because then they don't know who their identity is. My identity is the hurt person. And so I, it's hard for me to extend forgiveness because all I know is to always be the hurt person. And they've built their identity around being the hurt person rather than their identity being around, around Christ. That, some of you that may sound foreign, like that's not me. I always want to forgive. I don't want to be the hurt person. I want my identity to be in Jesus. But there are people that do that. They just go from hurt to hurt, holding on, holding on. And they don't know what it's like to actually extend forgiveness to somebody and be free from uh, always having to hold on to hurt. The next one is uh, they've let the pain that's happened to them define them. Uh, They can't forgive because it's defined who they are and they just absolutely can't break free. They They are pushed down into this world of pain that's happened and they don't even know how to break free. It's It's defeated them. And they don't know how to forgive. Another one is uh, that people might not forgive is some people forget that the gospel has actually forgiven them. And so they can't extend grace to someone else because they can't remember. And there's more on this in the sermon. They can't remember just how unbelievable it felt to be forgiven by God. Um, but how important it is, it is it to forgive. So if those are some, there's numerous more. But if those are some of the reasons why people might not forgive, why is it important to forgive? Why is it important for us if we've been hurt by someone and, God, and the Bible, as we saw last week, calls us to reconcile? Why is it so important to actually forgive? Well, here's maybe the most important reason. You are most like God whenever you forgive. You are most like God whenever you forgive. And we're called, that's not on there yet. Um, we're, we are called to be like God as Christians. We're called to be like Christ. Um, number two, when you forgive, you actually open yourself up to the blessings of God. Whenever your heart is ready to forgive others, you'll start seeing all the blessings that the Lord will start putting in your life. And lastly, um, why is it important to forgive is you actually will enhance your worship, your worship of Jesus, not just in the corporate setting like in this room, but our lifestyle worship. Uh, Those are enhanced whenever we forgive because we start realizing the forgiveness that we've received. So uh, forgiveness is absolutely necessary. So whenever we go to the text today, um, the point of verses 5 through 11 that Paul is going to talk about is he's going to give us uh, lessons to learn whenever learning how to forgive each other. And this is a very personal thing for him. These are the lessons that he is literally telling the Corinthian church that that has happened to his heart as he's learned to extend the forgiveness to them. And so uh, verse 5. Now, it says now if that that word if in verse 5 uh, we we in english just just have if like if uh, i don't know uh, we'll see uh, but in greek there's a few different ifs so in in greek there's an if like if um, and it's absolutely true so whenever we read it whenever we read it in english we're like this we just read it in the way we're used to reading ifs it's like if and i don't know if this is true but in greek they have different little ifs and so they have if, and I know this is true, they have if, and I know this isn't true, and they have if, and I don't know. But this particular one is if, and it's true. 
So when you read this, know that this is one of those Greek ifs. It's like if, but it's not, a, it's not a, like I'm not sure. It's an if, and I know this is absolutely true. So he says, if anyone has caused pain, as if, as if to say, if someone has caused pain, but I know they have. If anyone has caused pain, and I know they have, he has caused pain. Now, interestingly, remember from last week, the Corinthian church had wronged Paul directly, right? And Paul's going to tell them, if someone has caused pain, and I know that they have, it's obviously true that they have, he says, he has caused it not to me. Wait a second, Paul. That's not true. He, you're the one that got wronged. You're the one that actually got hurt here. Watch what he says. He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So he's telling the Corinthian church, that one person that's done this, and he seems to be like he's repentant. He hasn't really, even though he hurt me, he hasn't really hurt me. He's actually hurt you, Corinthian church. You're the recipients of this thing that he's done. Uh, Paul's definitely been sinned against, and he has actually received pain here. But the important thing that he's wanting to do is he's wanting to acknowledge, wants the Corinthian church to acknowledge that they are the ones that have actually been uh, hurt, not just Paul. And so he's going to say, and it's an important feature of the text, he's going to say that he's not the one that's in pain here, but someone else is in pain. And the people that are in pain are the people that are in Corinth. And he says, all of you are the ones who are in pain. So he's saying, Corinthian church, uh, they tried to hurt me, but you didn't really hurt me because you hurt your Corinthian brothers and sisters. When we see that, what we like, you should actually realize that you've hurt your Corinthian brothers and, and sisters. So when we see that, what we see then is Paul is choosing in this moment to not take the offense personally, but to think of how it hurt other people. He, he has reason to be resentful, but he's not resentful here. Instead, he's, he's choosing not to be hurt, and he's letting the Corinthian church say, I'm not choosing to be hurt. Pastor Paul doesn't want to make it about himself, even though he's the primary person that's been done wrong here. He doesn't want to make it about himself, but instead he wants to pastor the Corinthian church and let them know that this person has literally caused pain to them, not him, and that they should learn, as he has, to already extend forgiveness. Paul's the one that's been offended here, but what does Paul do? Immediately, what we can see here is if anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it to me, even though it, that it, he definitely has. Paul says in some measure, not to put it too severely, he's done it to you. He's pushing it away from himself and saying, I'm choosing here not to be personally offended. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to forgive. And so whenever we are sinned against, what, the first lesson that we can see, learning to... Uh, forgive others. The first thing that we can see is determine in your hearts not to take the offense personally. Now, you have been offended personally if someone sinned against you. And I'm saying determine in your heart not to take the offense personally. And the reason why is it's so much more difficult to extend forgiveness if we choose to just let it hit us so deeply that we're going to be so offended. And so Paul's here putting a model for us to say, don't let yourself wallow into a victimology to where you can't, you can't ever extend forgiveness. Choose not to take the offense personally, but instead, as Christ-like as you can be, that's what God does. He chooses not to take the offense personally. He put it on his son, and now he's saying, I'm going to extend forgiveness. I'm going to extend forgiveness. How can Paul say that when he was the one that was sinned against? How can he do that? He tells us what happened as we saw last week, that he's the one that was sinned against. John MacArthur says this, by refusing to make an issue out of his personal injury, the apostle intended to soften the animosity toward the repentant offender. And so by choosing to not take it personally, he's literally making it so he and the person that did it actually have an easier way towards reconciliation. By choosing not. And so when someone has offended you, you can make it quite difficult for you to forgive and for the two of you to reconcile if you take it so personally. But if you choose not to be offended, even though you, you were the one done wrong, you make reconciliation between you and the other person tremendously easier. And that's what MacArthur is saying. By choosing, by refusing to make the issue out of this, his personal injury, the apostle intended to soften the animosity. In other words, he didn't want to uh, the Corinthians to hold a grudge against this person that sinned against him. So he immediately forgave the person in the eyes of the Corinthian church so that they could not hold a grudge 
even though they shouldn't hold a grudge anyway, because only Paul should and he chooses not to. That's amazing. That's the first lesson we see here is determine in your heart not to take the offense personally, but instead lead with wanting to forgive. Lead with wanting to forgive. That's what he says. He has not caused it to me, is what Paul says in verse 5b. He's not caused it to me. Now, keep going. He says, for, in some measure, not to put it just really, did it to all of you. And then he says this, for such a one, now that for such a one is the one who caused the offense. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So Paul's implicitly saying here, that uh, the congregation in the Corinthian church knows who this person is, and they have, by some means, put some level of punishment on this person. They've done something to this person so that he knows he's received some kind of punishment. And Paul's saying, I'm aware, Corinthian church, that you put some kind of punishment on this guy, and he feels... uh, Like he's been punished. He knows that he's been punished and he's felt the weight of that punishment. And Paul is saying, now that's enough. You don't let it need to do it anymore. So read it again. For such a one, this punishment by the majority, that's the people in the Corinthian church, is enough. It's enough. Consider what Paul is saying. Punishment has been inflicted by by the majority. And this guy that's done the wrong thing, he suffered enough. It's been enough. He says, it is enough. So when Paul says it's enough. He's calling for mercy. He's calling to show this person mercy, which leads us into the second lesson in regarding forgiveness. Mercy should be the overarching guideline in forgiveness. Whenever you need to extend forgiveness to someone, your heart should want to say, mercy, that's enough. Mercy should be the overarching guideline when extending forgiveness to someone. Why? Why? Because it literally is the most Christ-like thing for us to do. This is what Christ does. The overarching guideline, not guideline, the overarching uh, feature of the gospel, one of the overarching features of the gospel is that Jesus is showing us mercy when he's the one that's been been wrong. He's extending forgiveness to us. It could have been punishment from the church and from Paul. Paul could have said, now that you've shown mercy, uh, that's not enough. I'm going, or now that you've shown punishment, that's not enough. I'm also going to show punishment. And Paul's like, no, what you've done is enough. I'm not going to do anything. We're going to show mercy now here. Paul uh, is not going to, Paul says the church, you've done enough. Nothing could come from what I'm going to do. So what I'm going to do is have an overarching uh, step towards giving mercy here. And so in Paul's estimation, it was time to forgive and restore this man. It was time to forgive and restore. What's happened is enough. So the second lesson in regard to uh, forgiveness is the overarching guideline should be uh, mercy. So remember, the first thing is don't take it personally. Um, Choose to forgive as fast as you possibly can. Holding grudges will only cause your relationship likely to deteriorate. Number two, mercy should be the overarching guideline. Now, Whenever we keep going, we're going to see some more lessons in forgiveness. So watch what Paul says. Uh, So uh, for such a one, this punishment majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So whenever we see this, so you should rather. So some translations will say, so on the contrary. So on the contrary. And so this, of course, means there was an effort. effort. So when he says, so you should rather turn to forgive. Think about what he's saying there. So on the contrary, you should rather turn to forgive. So if he's going to say, so you should rather, or on the contrary, you should turn to forgive. That means there was... Uh, a vestige of the Corinthians that are saying, no, let's not forgive yet. Let's not do that. And so he's saying, on the contrary, you should want to forgive. So, of course, that means there was an effort by some of the Corinthians that were not satisfied with the level of suffering that this offender had received yet. They wanted him to have more punishment. They weren't satisfied. And he says, no, on the contrary of your further prolonged punishment you want to give him, on the contrary, what I want you to do is forgive him and comfort him. 
don't give him more punishment. The Corinthians still wanted to give more for what they had done wrong, for what this guy had done wrong to Paul. And he goes, no, stop, forgive and comfort, or if you don't, watch what's going to grow. And so Paul says, stop, no more punishment needs to happen. I want you to think differently here. I want you to think differently, which leads us into that third lesson and regarding forgiveness. It is, in forgiving others, offer comfort. If you want to see uh, an, an exegesis on one through on comfort, just go see verses 1, 1 through 11. Or you can go back and watch a, a sermon from two weeks ago from this church called Remedy Church. Really, really good exposition on that two weeks ago. I'm just kidding. Um, and then, of course, it says, I am kidding, by the way. Uh, and then it says, and seek to restore their joy. So whenever you forgive someone, notice this. He's not just saying, I forgive you. Don't just say, I forgive you, all's good. He's literally telling you, forgive them, and then they are sad, and now you are to take the lead role in restoring their joy. You're the one that's been offended. And he says, now take the lead role as the one who's been offended, go to the offender and seek to restore their joy in Christ. That's a big ask, right? That's a pretty big ask. But that's what he's saying. Look, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Go comfort the guy that offended you. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I don't want him to be sorrowful. So the way that I'm going to comfort him so he's not sorrowful is I want to bring him joy. And so I'm going to comfort him and restore him into joy. That's amazing. Think about how much... uh, Humility, God's calling us to have to go to someone that's offended us and do that. But that's what the text is saying, right? This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and what he's saying he's going to do. So that leads us to that third one. As I said, it may still be on the screen. In forgiving others, offer comfort. Whenever you're forgiving someone who's wronged you, you should offer comfort, see verses 1, 1 through 11, and seek to restore their joy. Paul wants us to think, totally differently when it comes to forgiving others. It's not just, okay, fine, I forgive you. Just don't be with me in my life anymore. Fine. It's not that. It's, I do forgive you, and now I'm going to take the lead role in giving you comfort and restoring your joy. That's an amazing thing that the Lord is asking us to do when we've been wronged by someone. Now, what's not explicit in this text is this, that the person has repented. It doesn't say Word for word in verses 5 through 11, this guy that's done the thing, he repents in dust and ashes and he has ripped his clothes and said, I, for, I, I, I need forgiveness. But it is implicit. It is implicit in the text when you see it in verse 7. So you should rather turn to forgive. So if Paul's going to say, forgive someone, it likely means that they've repented, right? Pastor Paul, Paul the Apostle, the guy that wrote the Bible, if he's going to say, forgive someone, it likely means that they've actually repented. So it's not explicit, but it is at least implicit. If Paul is to tell the Corinthian church that they should forgive, it likely means that the offender has repented. And so, as I've said, believers are never more like God when they show forgiving mercy to a repentant sinner. When they show forgiving mercy toward a repentant sinner. And so further, Paul, as I said, exhorts the church to comfort him when he says, you should turn and comfort him. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about this amazing ask of God who's somebody that's done you wrong, that you're not only supposed to forgive them, but you're literally supposed to take the lead role to comfort them. This word, to come alongside and strengthen and, and encourage. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, which is the noun form of the verb parakaleo. He's the one that comes alongside us and strengthens and encourages us. So it's, a, it's an aspect. It's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not just that, right? The Holy Spirit is a whole bunch of things. But one of the things that he is is the paraclete, right? And he's telling you to be in a sense like that, right? Whenever you've been done wrong, to, you're to go parakaleo someone. You're to the person that's done you wrong, Come alongside them, strengthen and encourage them back into Christ. As maybe Galatians 6 1 says it this way Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, let you to be tempted. Now, what's not in Galatians 6 1 is uh, if you're the one who's been sinned against. But it is in this text. If you, even if you've been sinned against, 
You can do Galatians 6.1. You who are spiritual should go and restore him in a spiritual gentleness. Comfort the person who's done you wrong. Be the parakaleo that comes along and wants to comfort them and strengthen them back into joy in Jesus Christ. Remember, this is the most amazing part. It's to be done by the one who's been offended to the offender, not the reverse. And why does Paul tell us to do that? Why does he tell us to go and comfort them? So that they won't be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. God doesn't want for people to be consumed by the grief caused by their sin. He doesn't want them to be consumed by grief by their sin. Instead, he wants them to have joy. This is the whole point of the gospel. We would be absolutely despairing if we didn't have Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sin. And he doesn't want us to wallow in the the utter guilt that our sin causes in our hearts. That's why he gave us Jesus, so that we don't wallow in the utter grief that our sin um, causes us. But now we, we can have that lifted off of us because of Jesus Christ, and he wants us to do the same. We should restore their joy. Not only are we called to go comfort them and seek their joy in Christ, but in the next verse, we're going to see something else that we're going to do. Watch verse 8. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So in forgiveness, that leads us to the fourth lesson is this. When you forgive, and I I put the word verbally, and I even underlined it on the screen there, verbally reaffirm your love to the person. Whenever you forgive to them, forgive them, you should say, yes, I forgive you. And then verbally, you should say a sentence along the lines of, and I still love you. And here's how I love you. Here's the depths in which I still love you. Verbally, as it says in this person, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Um, A key aspect in restoring their joy is to tell them that you love them. To tell them that you love them. The word reaffirm here, this reaffirm in the Greek, is only used one other time in the New Testament. Only one other time. Reaffirm. It's used in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. And in the context of chapter 3, verse 15, Paul is talking about formally ratifying a covenant. Formally ratifying a covenant. So what he's saying here is, when you reaffirm the love that you have for someone, you go, he's telling you to go reaffirm your love. He's telling you to restore the, the covenant between the two of you, verbally, by saying how much you love. I'm going to restore, verbally telling you how much I love you. And it restores the covenant between us as friends, or as spouses, or as brother and sister, or as brother and brother, or as best friends, or fill in the blank. But there's some kind of unwritten, unspoken friendship covenant that you have with someone that's been done wrong. And whenever you verbally communicate to them that you love them, you are putting that covenant back together by telling them that they love. So when he says, reaffirm your love, you don't just say, hey, and by the way, I love you. Like, it's not a flippant, I love you and everything's good. You're literally, by saying that, ratifying the covenant between the two of you. And so it's key to forgiveness is to tell them verbally that you love them. I think that's just absolutely beautiful what Paul's telling us to do. Um, and that's what's happening with God and man in the gospel. Whenever the Lord put Christ on the cross, he is verbally telling us that he loves us and literally reaffirming the covenant between God and man. All the promises that he's made in the Old Testament are coming to their fruition on the cross of Christ saying, this is how much I love you. To extend my arms back and forth on this cross to let you know. Don't miss this when he says to reaffirm when you have this covenant being restored, it also has ecclesiological implications. So if someone has been sending, has, has sinned so bad that they've actually been kicked out of the church or excommunicated or barred from the table or said you can't be a part of uh, the worship experience until you're rep- repentant or the worship service, he's telling them to reaffirm. And so it all, this, this text here in verse 8 also has an ecclesiological implication or a church implication, which is they should also be restored to the church. 
they should be allowed back to the table. They should be disexcommunicated and brought back into the church. And so there's an ecclesiological implication that Paul is calling for as well, saying that this person has been publicly disciplined by the church, and now they need to be publicly restored to the church in love so that everybody can rejoice, not in this guy, but in Jesus who calls his hearts to repent. And so, so this whole thing is brought back together again. Um, and we are, we are at its core uh, re- reuniting this once lost sinner back to Jesus. And that should cause us all to be joyful. It should cause us all to be joyful. And so at its core, uh, Jesus, uh, Paul is calling not just for, uh, not just for you to verbally say you love them, but to bring them back into the church. Um, I, I can remember, I don't know if, if you have listened to John Piper very long. In 1998, 99, 98 or 99, I read the book Desiring God and it changed my life for a long time. And not like the Bible changed my life, but in some ways it changed my theology. And as soon as I heard about John Paper in 1999, I started listening to sermons on tape back then. I had to get them on tape from my mom. She would mail me cassette tapes. You, if you don't have a cassette player, there are these little things you can stick in your car that you have to hit rewind and the the thing st- extends out and you got to get your pencil and stick it back in there so that uh, the thing will go back in. Anyway, the whole point is I started listening to Piper, right? And so uh, I listened to him on tape. And this is back whenever he had a son that had gone wayward. And he said many times at different conferences and even on Sunday mornings, pray for my son. He lives in a van in Florida making rock music. And at some point they eventually, because this, this, his son at, had been a member at his church and they had to have a service where because this guy, had his son had been uh, living in such a sinful way, they had to actually excommunicate. He had, Piper had to excommunicate his own son from uh, his church. And it broke his heart. And so um, I remember just listening to sermons week in, week out. And he would say, pray for my son, pray for my son. Uh, and he said, one day he came up and he said, I got an email from my son that said, dad, I'm coming home. And then he had a, uh, a dis-excommunication service where his son was actually brought back into the church and reinstated. And I remember Piper saying something like, that was a good service. That was a really good service. Um, And so that's what's happening to this guy. When Paul is telling the Corinthian church, bring him back. There's There's a great thing that's happening whenever someone's brought back into and restored to the church because they have repented and come back. And so Paul is saying, verbally affirm your love when you forgive, but also restore the covenant that had been broken. Um, That's the fourth lesson whenever uh, we see here. Now, if you keep going, uh, it says in verse uh, 8, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Verse 9, this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in Everything that I might test and know whether you are obedient in everything. Think about that for a second. Paul's writing and he's saying, I want you to forgive. And I'm writing this so that I can test and know whether you're obedient in everything. I want you to forgive. And I'm telling the lesson is this. Now, the, the verse is going to be wrong. But the fifth lesson is this. Forgiving others is essentially an obedience issue. Think about that. If you don't forgive... You are being disobedient. Now, I put verse 8. That's actually verse 9 on the screen. When you see verse 8, that's verse 9. So, my bad on that. Um, If it says verse 9, then I got it right. But I think it says verse 8. But forgiveness is essentially an obedience issue. Paul says that you would be obedient in everything. This is why I wrote. That's interesting. Paul is in the severe letter that he wrote them. That he mentions in 2-1. The third letter in the correspondence. And the third letter in the severe letter. Between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Paul tells the Corinthian church um, that he wants them to obey uh, and he wants them to, uh, this is what he says in verse 9, this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. And if they were forgiving, then it would reveal to Paul and the Corinthians church their heart condition before God that they choose to obey. Now, this is controversial. This is really controversial. uh, Because if you've been wronged by someone, deeply hurt by someone. Here I am saying to you, if you don't forgive them, 
you're not being obedient to God. Like if they've done something excruciatingly terrible to you and it's caused a deep level of pain and it's hard for you to forgive in that moment. And you're like, I don't know how I can forgive. And you hear me saying, if you don't forgive, you're disobedient. And you're like, wait a second, I'm the one that's gotten wronged here. How is it that you're telling me I'm disobedient? They're the one that did it wrong. But you have absolutely no heart whatsoever. How can you be that way? So let me just say, I know it's controversial. Telling someone that's been wronged, that Jesus commands you to forgive. Um, and it seems like if you don't forgive, then I'm being harsh by saying, by not forgiving, you're, you're disobeying Jesus. When you're like, wait a second, they disobeyed Jesus when they hurt me. How is it that you can tell me it's an obedience issue? I understand that. Um, I understand that. And I don't think it has to be thought of. That's harsh, Fudd. How could you say that? I don't think it has to be thought of that way, even though it feels that way. Um, it, it, I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back to that. I'm, the way I'm going to answer lesson number five and why that seems harsh is by going into lesson number six. And as I get to the bottom of lesson number six, I'm going to bring us back and kind of tie five and six together. So for, remember, being, forgiven, being, being willing to forgive is an obedience issue. And I don't think we have to think of it as a harsh thing to say. And if you don't, you're disobeying. Here's why. Look at uh, verse 10. Uh, verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So... Um, there's this kind of Latin phrase that says we live all of our life uh, corum Deo. This is before the face of God. That we literally live our entire life before the face of God. You may think that you don't, but uh, even when you're totally by yourself, you're still corum Deo. You're still before the face of God at all moments. There's never a time where you're not before God. And this is what Paul is kind of getting at here is um, in verse in verse 10, where he says, we, for your sake, we live in, in the presence of God. This phrase is that we literally live before the, get, the, the, uh, before the face of God at all times. Which means, since we live before the presence of God, the presence of Christ at all times, he says, anyone whom you, verse 10, anyone whom you, you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if not forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So, for your sake, in the presence of Christ. And so what Paul's saying, I think ultimately is this. Um, being able to forgive uh, is not based on uh, the fact that it feels harsh to tell someone to forgive when they've been wrong. Being able to forgive is having a unique understanding of the gospel's work in my own heart. It, what Christ has done. When he says in the presence of Christ, he's hearkening us back to think about what Christ has done, right? Because we live before the face of God, uh, but we also here are in the presence of Christ always. And why does he want me to think about what's happening in the presence of Christ? Because what happened at some point in our life is we have been forgiven by God. Think of all the offenses we've done, right? Before the face of God. And what has he done? He's extended forgiven to us. And so now we live our lives always before the presence of Christ. And so whenever we've been offended, what we should do is think back to the moment and say, since Christ has forgiven me, then I can also forgive other people. So how does verse five say it's an obedience issue because of lesson number six, which is this. Here's lesson number six. Forgiving other people affirms the gospel's efficacy in our hearts. Forgiving other people affirms the gospel's efficacy in our hearts. Efficacy is just a fancy word for efficient, right? Efficiency, but I don't know if that's a word. Maybe it is. Efficiency-ness is what it kind of means. But uh, here's what I want to make sure you understand. When I say the gospel's efficacy, I do not mean, I do not mean that the gospel has not fully saved you yet. Like if you don't forgive then the gospel hadn't fully saved you yet. That's not what I'm saying at all. So when I say the gospel's efficacy, I don't mean that the gospel hadn't fully saved you if you don't forgive. The gospel fully saves at the end, you, like, right at the beginning. Boom, you're fully saved. So when I say the gospel's efficacy, I mean, since the gospel has already fully saved you, how moved are you by that? 
Since the gospel has fully saved you, how much do you think about that? Since the gospel has fully saved you, how much does our heart want to expressly worship Jesus because of this? So when it says it affirms the gospel's efficacy in our hearts, it means since the gospel has fully saved you, whenever it has, how much does your heart, since you've been forgiven, want to extend forgiveness to other people? That's showing the gospel's efficacy. Since God has fully, fully forgiven me, I can fully forgive others. And so forgiving others affirms the gospel's efficacy in our hearts, as in, I do understand how much I've been forgiven. So now I can forgive others. Because since we truly live our, our lives in the presence of Christ, um, what we believe about the gospel is made manifest in how we forgive others. What do I believe about the gospel? That Jesus has truly forgiven me so I can forgive others. It tells the truth. Whether you can forgive or not tells the truth about what you believe about the gospel. That's what Paul's trying to say. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Matthew chapter 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. You think it was direct for me to say it's an obedience issue. That is major direct from Jesus. Think of it this way. This is why I think it's easy to extend forgiveness to people that have wronged you. Think of it this way. There's a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 where Paul says this. um, This is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Of whom I am the foremost. I believe this about myself. You should also. Paul believed it about himself. I believe it about me. You should believe it about you. And if we adapt that into our mind, I am the chief of all sinners and God saved me. That should cause us to absolutely marvel. It should cause us to utterly marvel at God's saving of us. And if that's the case, utterly marveling at the gospel shows the gospel's efficacy in your life. If you don't utterly marvel that Jesus saved you, then you probably don't think yourself of the chief of all sinners. And you probably still forgives you and it caused you just to utterly marvel that he would do that. The gospel's efficacy in your life is made massively manifest in your life and then extending Forgiveness to others is easier because you can't get over the fact that God forgave you. There was one uh, pastor, his name's Matt Carter. He's uh, a pastor in this real big church in Texas. And uh, I heard one day, I can't remember where I was. I was at something where he was talking. And he said that uh, whenever people come to his church and interview for positions, he's at a big church. So he's got all kinds of positions always open. He is the main preacher, but he's not the XP. The XP is the executive pastor. So the XP does all the like admin work. Matt just, Matt just preaches and the XP does all the grunt work, right? And so whenever somebody's interviewing, Matt sits into the interviews, he says, but he ha- doesn't have to do all the work of the interview. He lets the XP ask all the questions, you know, da-da-da, where are you from? But finally gets to the end, Matt said, I don't ever ask any questions. At the very end, when it's my turn, I only ask one question. That's it. And so this doesn't really, this text doesn't have anything to do with hiring people. But the one question he asked has everything to do with the gospel's efficacy in your life. And ever since I heard him say this, I mean, this might have been back in like 2011, but it stuck with me for nine years. He said, I only ask one question. Anybody that interviews for the church, this is all I ever ask is, when's the last time the gospel made you cry? When's the last time the gospel made you cry? And he says, if they can't remember, I don't hire them. That's all I need to know. When's the last time the gospel made you cry? Meaning this. Being utterly moved and utterly marveling that God would save such a sinner as me displays the gospel's efficacy in my heart in such degree that I am in a perpetual state of never being able to get over that. Like, I still can't believe that the Lord would save me. And then sometimes it makes you so emotional that you can't even speak. You should feel that way about being saved by Jesus. And so, now... That helps us go back to number five. Whenever it's an obedience issue and I can't get over the fact that King Jesus saved me, all I want to do is obey the king. 
All I want to do is obey the king. If he forgave me, the chief of sinners, then I can obey him and forgive this person. That's why I don't think that whenever I say in number five, that it has to be super controversial to say it's an obedience issue. Because all I want to do is obey King Jesus. That's all I want to do. And now I can extend forgiveness. Even through lots of pain that someone has caused me, I can extend forgiveness to them. Because King Jesus has extended forgiveness to me. That's number six. And that displays the gospel's efficiencyness or efficacy in your life. Lastly, is this, verse 11. So uh, as he says, we live in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan hates forgiveness. He hates it. He has a design. He is trying to outwit your heart to not forgive. He has, as he says, a design to make you and make me so hard-hearted that we would never want to extend forgiveness to someone. He hates forgiveness. He hates tender hearts. He wants hard hearts that are angry all the time, that are never letting go of their pain. Forgiveness destroys the works of Satan. And let's just say, we want to destroy the work of Satan. We hate Satan. We hate him. He's awful. It's okay to hate Satan. He's not a person. He's an angel. And he's never going to repent. He is wicked to the core. And all he wants for us is to fail. We hate him. We love Jesus. And we want to destroy every single work of him. And he never, ever, ever wants us to forgive. And so, we don't want that. John MacArthur in his commentary says this. And it's just, you, you can't, I can't get any better than John MacArthur here. Satan's goal for the church is the opposite of God's. God wants a humble Merciful, joyful, loving, obedient fellowship. Satan wants where sin reigns supreme. If sin is confronted, Satan wants it done in such a harsh, graceless, merciless manner. Both failing to deal with sin and failing to forgive repentant sinners can destroy a church. Paul stressed that to the Corinthians, must forgive and must restore the room by Satan. An unforgiving spirit plays right into the devil's hands and gives him the leverage he needs to split a church apart. And so we don't want that. Not just here, but in any church. And so we want to destroy the work of Satan by extending forgiveness, not just to people in your church so that it doesn't split us apart, but to any person that's wronged you. We want to stand Firm against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6, verse 11, and not give him any opportunity, Ephesians 4, 27, to take hold in our lives. And the way that we do this is by forgiving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgiveness affects then, therefore, whenever you think about what does forgiveness affect, it, forgi- it affects verse 5, the one who forgives. It affects verse 6 through 8, the one that's been forgiven. And it affects verses 9 through 11, the entire church. Forgiveness in a positive manner affects everyone. It affects the one who forgives. It affects the one who's been forgiven. And it affects the entire church. Forgiveness is all-encompassing. It's all-encompassing. So, to close off on this section, we need to be majorly forgiving people. Now, verse 12 through 13 is a little little, uh, little transition sentence. Um, that we won't spend too much time on because verses 14 through 17 is my conclusion. And there's just too much gospel goodness in 14 through 17. So I want to get into the gospel goodness. Um, but in verse 12 and 13, basically, uh, it's, it's telling us that Paul went to Troas. You can read Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. But verse 6 is where Paul says that he was only in Troas for seven days. Uh, so if you want to know how long he was there, Acts chapter 20, verse 6 says seven days. But here's, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. That means I was there seven days and I left. That's what he's trying to just tell us there. That's it. Verse 13, 14. Here we go. And, and this is my conclusion, 14 through 17. And in the, in the conclusion, there's four 
uh, great big pieces of gospel goodness. And I use the word piece because um, the, my favorite food in the word is bacon, and I always want a piece of bacon. And so, like, I'm using the word piece because it's, it's making me think of the, one of the greatest inventions ever, which is bacon. But the gospel is, like, infinitely better than bacon. We know that. So think of this as the four great, big, huge, awesome bacon pieces of gospel goodness in, in verses 1 uh, 14 through 17, but infinitely better. I'm not trying to be heretical here. Like bacon's nothing compared to Jesus. All right, verse 14. Uh, but it says this. So there's the conclusion is four gospel goodnesses. And these four gospel goodnesses are meant for our edification. They're meant for you to just fi- finally, when we get to the end, to just say, yes, Jesus, I love it. Mm, let's sing and worship Jesus. So verse 14, but thanks be to God um, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. But verse 14 again, but thanks be to God who in Christ, who always leads us in triumphal procession. So number one, first piece of gospel goodness in verse 14 is this. We are triumphant in Christ. We're triumphant in Christ. You're not triumphant anywhere else besides in Christ. But in Christ, he's literally leading you in triumphal procession. After salvation, you're lightly forgiven and promised victory in Christ Jesus. That's not just going to be ours, but it's literally ours right now. Ultimately, we have triumph in this moment over sin. So offender who's offended me, if you're in Christ... You have triumph over that sin that you've offended me with. And if you have asked Jesus for forgiveness, I can extend it to you. So we are in a perpetual moment of triumphal procession in Christ because of the gospel. So whatever day you had this week or however you feel right now in this moment, realize you are in continual triumph right now in Christ. That is a big, huge, awesome piece of gospel goodness. Don't matter what your week was like. Doesn't matter what this next week is going to be like. You are in a continual triumphant procession in Christ right now. You have triumph. That's awesome. But it even gets better. Keep reading verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Number two of gospel goodness. You are always led by a sovereign God. You're always led by a sovereign God. So it, I want to be led. Okay, good, I am. I'm always led. Who am I led by? Someone that knows the way? Someone that kind of knows the way? I'm led by a sovereign God. Sovereign meaning knowing everything there is to know about where to go. God's promise to never lead, leave us or never forsake us when Jesus tells us in Matthew twenty-eight twenty is absolutely true. We are always led by a sovereign God. This is a great gospel comfort that no matter what trial is going on in my life, whether you're having a massively difficult time in your life right now, it's really good gospel news to know. I am continually led by God, a sovereign God right now through this trouble, through this trial. That's the second piece of gospel goodness. Number three, keep reading in 14. Um, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Here it is. And... Through us, think about that, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So we are, he's literally calling us the fragrance of Christ in that moment. Or as he says in verse 15, the aroma of Christ. So in Christ, you are literally the fragrance of Christ or the aroma of Christ. You figuratively smell like Jesus every day as you walk through this world. You are the fragrance of Jesus or the aroma of Christ right now. Um, Who through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to those. Number three, we have the fragrance of Christ literally spreading Jesus through us to others. That is great gospel goodness to think about in Christ I walk around, you walk around, we walk around, literally bring, being the, the smell of Jesus Christ to this world. No matter what we, where we go, what we do, we are spreading Christ. You're spreading Christ every day. When you came to church this day, 
you were already smelling like Jesus and literally not just smelling like him, spreading him. When you go home to your families, you are spreading Christ. When you walk through the grocery store or, you know, we're in isolation right now, so you're not walking too many places. But whenever it's all over and you're walking around, you are, it's not, I wonder if I'm going to today. You already smell like Jesus and you're spreading Jesus as you walk every day. Whether you want to or not, if you smell, you smell. You can't like take it off. I wonder if I'm spreading my smell. So you are, you're always spreading the smell of Jesus with or without words. Words are preferable, but you are always constantly spreading the fragrance of Christ. We are influencing constantly either people toward God or away from God with our lives. Now, it's not the way you think when I say that. You may think, well, gosh, my bad behavior um, takes them away from God. And it might, but that's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you're being like Christ. You're telling them the good news. And they either become more towards God or more towards away God, not because of you uh, and, and whether you're good or bad behavior. Because that's not what he's actually saying. It's not what you think. The determining factor of them either going towards God and away from God is not necessarily in this text, your good behavior or your bad behavior. Instead, the the determining factor of them going towards God or away from God is God's electing purpose. That's what he's saying here in this text. In this text, whether they go towards God or away from God is ultimately determined on God's electing purpose. That's what he's saying in this text. Watch. For we are the Lord of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance. So that means it's the same fragrance. So I'm going as the same fragrance to somebody. I'm not smelling bad and smelling good. I'm just smelling like Christ to these people. And if their heart's receptive to Christ, then the smell of Jesus is great. And they say, yes, life. It's the same fragrance to those people. And if their heart is not going to listen to Christ, then they go to death. It's It's the same gospel. I give the good news, says no, then they don't get life. And so we are the fragrance of Christ spreading Jesus by the gospel. And whether they respond is determined on God's purpose and election, not how good you can say the gospel, say the gospel. And if the Lord's going to move in their heart, your great words or your (laughs) jumbled mess is going to save them. And I've seen it happen from one gamut to the other, where someone eloquently said the gospel and people got saved and people had a word salad and discerning it had no sense whatsoever and the Lord saved. So your ability to say the gospel um, is important, but it's not the determining factor. God's election is. Now you can say, well, that's the case. Why say it? Because you have to say it. That's the whole point of Romans 10. How beautiful the feet. We have to say it. God in his sovereignty has orchestrated that they would get saved by our words. And so we still have to say them. And then he elects them. So back to the great gospel goodness, which is this. You are the fragrance of Christ. Spreading the good news of Jesus throughout this entire world. You smell of Jesus, whether you want to or not. But that's good. We want to smell of Jesus. Um, So we're the fragrance or the aroma of Christ. And he says, those who are are being saved and those who are perishing, which are passive verbs, right? Those who are being saved, those who are perishing are passive language, which means God's the active agent in salvation. God's the active agent in salvation. We're the fragrance. We're the aroma carrying out the gospel, but God's still the active agent in their salvation, not us. We just, we're being obedient and smelling like Jesus with our good news gospel words. That's the third piece of great good news gospel. The last one is verse 17. For the aroma of Christ of those who are being saved, among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death, to the other a fragrance for life. Who is sufficient for these things? Verse 17. For we are not like so many pillars of God's word. So he's, he's, a, he's a, appealing back to those super apostles in Corinth that had come and said that they're way better than Paul. And so he said, we're not like those guys. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So I just put all that together for the last piece of gospel goodness is this. We are, if we're in Christ, sincere, commissioned speakers for Christ. We're sincere. 
We're commissioned. You are commissioned. You have been commissioned by Jesus in the Great Commission. No one brought you up to the church and laid their hands on you likely and said, now go be a missionary the rest of your life. But you are. You have been commissioned already. We're sincere and we're commissioned and we're speakers for Christ. And we always live, as it says, in the sight of God, in the sight of God, quorum Deo, and before the face of God. These are all good things, right? That we are sincere commissioned speakers for Christ in the sight of God. He's saying that you can hold me up to public scrutiny. You can look at me. And because of Jesus, we, the church, we will stand. We will stand. We are sincere, commissioned, speakers for God, in the sight of God, and we will stand. And Jesus is why we stand. Jesus tells us these amazing pieces of gospel goodness in this text for the purpose of after talking about forgiveness so that we can remember who we are in Christ. Remember I said in point six that it's based on the gospel's efficacy and I need to know how much it moves me. Well, when you hear this, it should move you. It should move us to hear that I'm triumphant in Christ. I'm led by a sovereign God. I have the fragrance of Christ and I'm sincere, commissioned, public speaker in the sight of God. Amen. Hallelujah. That sounds great to me. Yes, the gospel's work is moving in my heart. Praise the Lord. I'm I'm so glad he's done this in my heart. That's what it should do. So what should we do now? What should we do as we finish this text? What should we do? Here's what we should do. Live lives that forgive others in light of the gospel. In light of the forgiveness that's been extended to you in Christ, of this great, there's a whole lot more gospel goodness in the text, in, in the Bible. I only gave us four. But in light of that, extend forgiveness to others. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I thank you for your word, and I pray that as we um, ponder it, that Holy Spirit, you would come now and cause it to take deep root in our hearts. You move through your word. So, Holy Spirit, cause the things that we've heard here to take deep root. If anything's not helpful, Lord, take that out. But anything from your word that I said that was helpful, that was true, that's penetrating, push it down deep in our souls so that we consider these things and we are just moved. And the gospel has caused us to be absolutely, because of that, utterly amazed that we would marvel at the good news in our hearts. And because of that, as the aroma of Christ, we would extend forgiveness to other people that have wronged us. We would seek their joy. We would seek their comfort. We would verbally tell them that we love them in order to reaffirm or reset that covenant back together with us in the church. Lord, cause these things to be. Only you can do that because of Jesus. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.